if I said it wasn't that the danger didn't add a certain frissance, a certain spice to it, I'd be lying, wouldn't I? Why do people bungee jump? Because they want a close look at the ground. No, they do it because it's dangerous. I don't do it because my back's bad, because I an alligator fall on me, and so I wouldn't want to do it now. We all do dangerous things in some way or other. And to be honest, expeditions in the 80s were much more dangerous than they are now. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to From the Ground Up podcast. And I would like to tell you guys a little bit about our Black Friday sale. We do have t-shirts available. And of course, t-shirts go to help us out on hosting this podcast. So thank you, everyone who's bought shirts and have supported us. And um, we're really, really excited today for today's episode. We are going to be having on the legendary Marco Shea, as you guys know, from Marco Shea's Big Adventure or uh, Doctor of Herpetology at University of Wolverhampton, and as well as a curator. So we're going to talk all things reptiles today. So Marco Shea, first of all, thank you so much for taking out the time and being here. And uh, let's get going on this book that you just actually uh, put out. Yeah, nice. Thanks for inviting me on, Joe. Yes, the Book of Snakes, my sixth title and um, the largest one so far. Yeah, published. Not early October, I think. And I hear sales are going and very now, well. Nearly sold out in the UK. Oh, that's amazing. So are they available still in the US? They're available still in the UK from from the big dealers that have bought in a lot of books, yeah. And they're still available in the US because um, there are two editions. Um, there's a The British edition's got a, a whitish cover and the, the, it's a sort of dark grey blue on the US edition. And Chicago, uh, University of Chicago Press, are the U.S. publisher, and um, they've got more copies. Yes, it is still available. I don't think they'll run out for a while, but I think we'll be looking to reprint over here um, in the new year. That's excellent. So obviously, Book of Snakes seems very general, and there's probably a lot to cover. So what can we expect inside the book? Well, um, the series of books, and this was the last in the series, there was the Book of Frogs, which you may have seen by Tim Halliday, who I'd co-authored um, the Dawn Kindersley Handbook to Reptiles and Amphibians with, and that also came out with the Smithsonian Field Guide and so forth. Um, there's, there's been about 10 books in the series covering all sorts of things, and the, the, there are two important factors about it. One, the 600 species represented and that's the case in every one of the books and two they're illustrated life size which gets difficult with snakes unless you're producing a very large book so the snakes appear as a, if it's a big snake you get a, a portion of the snake the head um, and then there is a full size um, there's, there's a, the whole snake reduced in size um, alongside and they're all on white and the the um, other aspect is that they've got a similar design throughout the whole series. There's a distribution map. There's a, a, a notes at the top giving you distribution, um, uh, prey, reproduction, site status. The scientific name, of course, is there. 
and um, then uh, maximum sizes. And then there's, then there's the general text and the captions of the photographs and, and a list of related species. It took two and a half years to write. And I had to start off by deciding which 600 snakes to choose. Now, there are, at this point, just over 3,700 snake species in the world. And so I had to decide which 600 to pick, which is nearly one in six of all known snakes. And I wanted to go for diversity. So I wanted snakes with a lot of unusual habits, behaviors and so forth, and also from unusual places. So I was going from snakes on mountains, snakes on islands, snakes everywhere. I wanted to represent every family and subfamily, which I did. Um, I haven't quite represented every genus. Um, it could have been possible, but no, it might not have been because some of them are so difficult to get photos of. And um, then I thought, well, what categories of, because it's arranged um, in, uh, taxonomically, starting the Scolicophidia, the blind snakes, and moving through the, the, um, the shield tails and pipe snakes and pythons and boas and on and on, all the way up to the colibrids and, and, and the uh, dipsidids, natricids, elapids and viperids. Um, but the snakes fall into, I suppose, three basic groups. I wanted to put in some that are commonly kept in captivity that people are familiar with, that they know well, their snakes, if you like, and that's things like corn snakes and milk snakes and king snakes and so forth. And then obviously there's the famous dangerous snakes that people wanted would want in the book, the black mamba and the king cobra and the taipans and things. They're in there. Um, and then I wanted to add a lot of snakes that even experienced snake aficionados might never have heard of, that had passed beneath their radars. And I've had a lot of feedback. Um, I've had emails from Harry Green and Rick Shine, uh, both of whom are two of the top snake ecologists in the world, and they've both complimented the book. And Rick Shine said to me, there are snakes in there I never knew existed. And that's something I've heard from a lot of people who do know snakes. So... It's well and good buying a book on snakes, but if you've heard of every species in there, what are you gaining? So I, I, I wanted the, something for everybody, and I'm hoping we achieve that. And the one hard and fast rule, we must be able to get a photograph, a good photograph, a publishable photograph of the whole snake. And from my list of 600, I only lost about 30 species and had to replace them because we couldn't get photos. So... It was well-researched list in the end. I'm very wow, pleased. Seems very time-consuming. And yeah. I mean, were these live specimens or museum specimens that were photographed? Oh, no, no. All live. I mean, I do spend a lot of time with my up to my arms in formalin and alcohol with museum specimens. But this book was all live snakes no no dead snakes at all um that's i mean uh, my papers when i published them we've got pictures of holotypes of snakes that were collected in the 19th century and things like that yes then we're photographing dead snakes as well as life but no this book that every single one of them is a live snake okay, yeah. 
So, I mean, commonly we skip over some of our fossorial species. Um, oh, yeah. I can find one that I, you know, a brand new one that I've never heard of before. So a lot of those ones. You have heard of a lot of them. I mean, there's, there's got to be nearly 300 blind snakes in, 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 the, in the blind snakes, worm snakes, sled snakes in the five families. Um, the Tiflopidae, the uh, uh, Gerophilidae, the Leptotiflopidae, um, the uh, Xenotiflopidae, and um, oh, yeah, uh, the Animalepidae. I mean, they're, 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 there's a lot of species there that people will not. They they were hard. Some of those are really hard to get photos of in life, and to confirm that they were what they thought they were. I'm sure. And I mean, the one thing that is common with those species is that we don't have captive animals to draw from because they seem to be very hard to keep. Well, not, yeah, yeah. Do you mean draw from to obtain? Yes. These are largely well. One of the benefits of being in herps for five decades or more is that I know a lot of people. And through Facebook and other things, I was able to call on all those brilliant herp photographers out there. And there are a lot of really good photographers. And if I said, oh, I'm looking for a photo of this, within 20 minutes, half an hour, people are throwing up names and making contacts. And the book would have been, couldn't, it couldn't have happened without. I, I, okay, I've got seventy odd photos in there. Yeah, but I wanted the best photos, and those aren't always mine. I recognise that fact. Um, so I was after the best photos, and so if somebody else had got a better one, that's the one we want. For sure, and that's that's great that it kind of seems like a book that was kind of put together by the community more so because it took everyone's effort to in kind fact, of. If you look at. <laughs> Here's the British edition, UK edition right now. Let's just find the, in the back. Have I got the list? There's the acknowledgements. Can you see that? Although every single one of those dark names, that's a photographer. Wow. And what they contributed. That's amazing. And they got paid. Well, they're getting paid. <laughs> Not very much, but... People were keen to get their, quite a few people said, well, I don't want to be, but I just want to get a, one of the pictures in your book. No, still get paid. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They were taking pictures of snakes, no matter if they're getting paid or not, I'm sure. Yeah, but photography photography is is an expensive hobby, and you do, you do need to earn something back from it because, you know, the gear gets trashed sometimes. You, you do need to, if you can earn from your photography, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. Did you, were you into photography? I mean, was it equal to your passion in reptiles or was it the reptiles that got no, you into photography? I like, I like doing photography, but it's a tool. Um, I, I, I photograph, most of my, my most important lenses are my macro lenses, including one which you'll shoot down to 10 times life size, which I use for photographing parasites of snakes and things like that, or the heads of blind snakes. Um, so I, I don't I've got one long lens which I might use if I went on safari, but I don't go on safari very often. No photography is a tool for me of what I do as a professional field herpetologist. And all the species that we find I obviously photograph. Um and I spend a lot of time photographing in museums. Um I'll photograph a, a specimen the entire animal dorsal, the entire animal ventral, hopefully pinned out so that I can get the scale counts off them afterwards. 
and then I'll do close-ups of the head, dorsal, ventral, left and right lateral for scalation da da uh, data, so I can actually draw the heads later. So for photography, it's, it's, um, it's an enjoyable pastime, but it is a tool of the job. Absolutely. Now, how many species, I mean, have you coined at this point or described? Oh, not that many. Um, I've been on, um, I mean, always co-authoring with people because a paper is much better if you've got two or three authors on it, sorts out the wrinkles. And working with colleagues, let's see. Um, I've just had Toxicalamus Pomihani published this month. Um, Toxicalamus uh, Ernst Mayer, I was described in 2015. We described um, Cylindrophus um, suboccularis, a, a um, pipe snake, a couple of years ago, largely led by my German friends. Um, we've had a, uh, a gecko from um, Timor, uh, Cyrtodactylus silatus. Um, and uh, we've got another species. We've got a species of Steganotus coming out soon, which I cannot name until it is published. <laughs> and, of course, I've just had a snake named after me by um, the guys in Germany at the University of Marburg um, and, uh, that I've worked with. They called it Cylindrophis O'Shei, and it's from Boano Island off the west of Saram. Now, what does that mean to someone who's a lifetime herper herpetologist? Well, it's nice for it to happen while you're still alive. I mean, the late lamented Joe Slowinski had about five species named after him, but it all happened after the event. Um, it's nice for it to happen while you're still kicking and walking around. Um, yeah, it's it's that that's recognition. That's it. It is a nice feeling. Absolutely. Now. I mean, how much time, I mean, obviously we're talking a little bit about your field research. I mean, how much time do you spend in the field these days? Far less than I used to. Um, during the 80s, in the 90s, I would be away on projects for three, four, five months at a time. I spent seven months in the Amazon for the Royal Geographical Society up in Huraima Territory. Um, I did expeditions for Operation Raleigh, running her projects in Papua New Guinea, West Africa, Central America, and they were three to four months at a time. I was used to spending long periods away. I, used, um, I was sent to Papua New Guinea by Oxford University to catch elapids for venom research in the 90s, and that was like five months and a spell, largely working on my own at that time. But now... With all my other commitments and things, I, I can't put that amount of time into it, um, being away. When I was filming, I was away a lot. When we were doing um, Big Adventure between 1999 and 2003, you go, oh, my God, is it that long ago? <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, let's see. I was away about 200 days a year. Wow. I'd come back from a, a film shoot which might be um, three films if they were half hours or one film if it was a, a one-hour special. And I'd be back in the country for about two to three weeks and I'd have dispatch rider come down and switch my passports and take the because they'd have got me getting my visas in one passport while I was travelling on the other one. I'd, I'd have to swap passports. 
and um, I'd go and do some voiceovers and things, and then we'd gather all the research up for the next one, be gone again. And yeah, that was uh, that was a pretty intense five years. I was. Wow. Now, I mean, how much did that get in the way or aid your research at the time? I mean, the film crew, everything like that. No, I mean, I was largely showcasing other people's research. On virtually every one of those films, I either had one main contributor um, or I had a number of contributors throughout the film. And I was looking to other people's research. Uh when we went to New Caledonia, Aaron Bauer came along. And like he'd been there 16 times at that point, and he knew the island really well, knew the country really well. And going looking for giant geckos, with he, he was the best person in the world to go, highlighting his research. And then um, when I was up in the North Philippines, I was with Skip Lazell, um, and he, he looking at flying um you know, Draco flying lizards. And, uh, of course, he described the species that was up there, so he was familiar up there. And when I went down Baja, California, who other, who else would you go with but Lee Grisma? So, you know, and, and many other luminaries. So I was highlighting, highlighting other people's work. My own research was really on the back burner. In fact, the only film that we did which was touching on my work um, was um, Magic Man in Papua New Guinea in the second season when I was out looking for Papua black snakes and a New Guinea small-eyed snakes, Micropegizikahika, because they were my stomping grounds. That's where I'd been doing work through the 90s, and so it was following my own trail. And that was that, that was the... I don't think I had a contributor on that at all, no. So that was me. But Now, what, what drew you to Papua? Um... Michael Rockefeller. He disappeared there. Right. When I was a kid, I had a shed at the bottom of the garden. And <clears throat> this is in the, the late 50s, early 60s. And in this shed, I would put up interesting news clippings from the Daily Express newspaper that my father took. And I had three full-page stories stuck up with drawing pins. And one of them was about Michael Rockefeller, the heir to the Rockefeller Millions, who was on a field trip on, in West New Guinea off the south coast. And the little boat they were in, I think it sank, and he swam to the shore and he was never seen again. And his father, with all the money they'd got, They'd got people out looking. They couldn't get it, couldn't find him. And it turns out that he was most likely eaten by the Asmat people. And the fact that there were still cannibals in the jungle really, really fired up my fascination. I was already interested in snakes, and there were snakes in New Guinea, and there were cannibals. And there were two other stories on, on my shed wall. Another one was about an expedition to the Amazon, and um, it was the Royal Geographical Society expedition, I think. But this expedition, the leader of the expedition had gone down from the camp to the river, to the boats, to pick something up, and he didn't come back. And after a while, the deputy leader of the expedition went to look for him, and he found him lying face down 
with arrows sticking out of his back and his head had been caved in with stone axes. He'd been attacked by a war party by from an uncontacted tribe. And that gruesome and terrible though it was, that sort of drew me to going to the Amazon. And the funny thing was with that story is I was telling that story to the director of the Royal Geographical Society sitting on the, re the veranda um, of the research station in Brazil in 1987. And he, when he asked me what had made me want to go to the Amazon, I told him that story. And he said, Mark, I was the deputy leader of that expedition. That was my best friend. It was me that went down the trail and found him. So it has almost come full circle. The story that I'd read about, I was actually on an expedition with the person who'd found the, the, the guy. And the third story was about Guam. And I've been there too, to look at the brown tree snakes. And that was a story about Japs in jungle don't know the war's over. Second World War, they didn't know. There they were, still, they were, they were um, still Japanese soldiers on some of the islands in the Pacific, holdouts. Wow. They wouldn't surrender. And anyone of my age, and certainly anyone in the States of my age, will, will know the stories of those. And so those, those three stories really drew me. that The world was still wild in places. So combining that with my interest in reptiles, that's why I wound up in the tropics, and especially Papua New Guinea. Now, there's a common thread of danger in all those. Is it the actual danger, or is it just how uninhabited the, the area seems to be? If I said it wasn't, that the danger didn't add a certain frissons, a certain spice to it, I'd be lying, wouldn't I? Um, yeah, why do people bungee jump? Because they want a close look at the ground. No, they do it because it's dangerous. I don't do it because my back's bad, because an alligator fall on me, and so I wouldn't want to do it now. Um, we, all, we all do dangerous things in some way or other. And um, to be honest, expeditions in the 80s were much more dangerous than they are now. God, there's, there's so many creature comforts now. We've all got these things. I'll tell you about when I got tagged, my first rattlesnake tag, back to the Royal Geographical Society expedition in Brazil, in Huraima territory, not even a state, in 1987. We didn't communicate um, by phones. There were, there were no mobile phones. Uh, there were no sat phones. There was no internet. We had a shortwave radio. When I with the dials on, they go, and you have to attach to a, um, a car battery, which it drains quite quickly. And this is like you see in the old 40s movies, people talking and, you know, talking on the big handpiece and so forth. We had one of those on the research station, which was five to six hours drive time from Boa Vista, which is the territory capital where we had an office where we had somebody else with one of these radios and a phone for the outside world. And we used to um, do radio checks. They'd be at six o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the afternoon. And the radio check would last about 10 minutes and the two radio operators would talk to each other and they'd say, look, we've run out of beer. Can you send some on the next supply run? Or they'd say, we're sending two entomologists out. Can you get a room ready on the research station? That sort of stuff. So the radio would then be turned off and they wouldn't be turned back on again until the next time for a radio check. 
and I was I was photographing um, a young um, tropical rattlesnake, um, Horaima, the Crotalus derisus Horaima, the one that's found in the savannas around there. I'd caught about six of them, up to some of the size of eastern diamondbacks. Wow! But I, this was a really small one, fortunately, because I was holding it in my right hand, and I'd rigged my camera so that I could hold my camera in the left hand and fire the shutter and I'd be moving it in to focus to just to get a head photograph just a close-up of the head detail when somebody said to me what are you doing Mark and I said I'm just photographing ow I must have slackened my grip I got bitten in the thumb I dropped the snake naturally caught it again with the other hand boxed it but I've now had a bite from a rattlesnake and the first thing you instinctively do is look at your watch. Half past six. 20 minutes after the radio has been turned off. Yeah. And 11 and a half hours before they're going to turn it back on again. They can't even tell the outside world that I've been bitten or arrange a medivac for 11 and a half hours. So I've got to survive this through the night. So we did observations, monitored the swelling, did all the necessary important observations. The nurse, we got a nurse on the station and we'd got a fridge that didn't work all the time with five, I think it was five, five packs of Butantan Anticrotalico, Butantan Institute, Butantan Rattlesnake Antivenom. But because the fridge didn't work all the time, this antivenom was not crystal clear. It was mm, cloudy, and no Western hospital would administer it. They'd throw it away. But we thought, we've got that in reserve if we have to use it. And I was doing pretty good through the night until about 3 o'clock in the morning when the venom seemed to start winning and the swelling started to advance further up my arm quite rapidly. And once you got past my elbow, that is an indication for antivenom. And so the nurse drew up the antivenom. She put it into a polyfuse, into a drip with 50 mils of normal saline. And um, she introduced it via the drip line into my arm. And I had a lot of unpleasant reactions. I had gum boils come up in my mouth. My scalp got super sensitive it was really really painful but the worst of the lot was i went blind i don't mean black blind i mean white blind like snow blind like a television with no aerial blind and i don't know if this is for 10 minutes 10 hours or forever i've lost my vision in the jungle and so i told her and i was also having a bit of breathing difficulty i told her and she she stopped the drip and she gave me a big dose of adrenaline and everything came back to normal and my vision came back, fortunately. But I still need the antivenom. So that was started again, but at a slower infusion rate. And I didn't react badly to it a second time. And then I seem to be doing much better, but I still need to be off the island. This is an island, this is an island in the North Amazon in Horaima. It's called Il Maracar. It's to the north um, west of Boavista. 
the river divides and comes together again and it leaves this island which is a hundred thousand hectares and it's a it's a reserve and we're the only people on there and um at, at six o'clock the radios came on and they were able to alert them in Borvista that I'd taken a, a bite and that I needed to be medevaced. And so that was put into action. And they stayed then just bringing car batteries to keep the radios going so they could maintain communication. And at about eight o'clock, we got a call to say that the, there was an aircraft had been dispatched. So I was carried out of the, the um, dispensary, our nursing room, on a, on a mattress which was put into the back of this old Jag, which is a Brazilian Jeep, right? Which it's got no roof or anything. Just a, just think of a cut off Jeep. They put me in the back of that on a mattress. And they drove me down to the causeway, which is two kilometers. Then I was lifted out and I was put into an Amerindian dugout canoe, paddled across the Uraraquara, taken out of the other side, brought into this old Bandaranchi land cruiser, driven up to this fazenda. And the aircraft came in came into land, all the seats had been taken out so they could mattress in there. And I was put into that and flown aboard Vista. Wow. And um, the one thing that I re was kept going through my mind was uh, something that a Brazilian herpetologist had told me, a guy called Celso Morata, who, who worked in Borvista. He said, if you get bitten, Mark, don't go to Borvista General Hospital. And I said, why not? He said, my friend was bitten by a rattlesnake. He went there. He told them it was a rattlesnake. They didn't believe him. And he spoke, he was a Brazilian, so he spoke perfect Portuguese. <laughs> not my God, Portuguese. They didn't believe him. They gave him the wrong antivenom, and, and he apparently died a few days later. So I'm thinking, oh, right. I'm going to the worst hospital I could be going to. So I thought, well, I've had my antivenom now. And this is the 1980s. This is when the AIDS epidemic's starting. This is when people are talking about hospitals down in Latin America boiling needles instead of throwing them away. So you're thinking, mm, this is not good. So when they got me to the hospital, I was determined that nobody was going to come near me with anything at all pointy. And I put on this ward and they wanted to give me some drugs and a drip, and no, 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 no. And I, my Portuguese isn't very good. It was probably a bit better then because I was working with Brazilians. But I found the best way to get my message over was to stand on the bed and ball my fists and threaten to punch anybody who came near me. And in the end, they gave up. They said, I'll leave the gringo alone and left me there. And I managed to get myself discharged the next day. And two days later, I was back on the research station and they had a massive party. Wow. Now, was that first reaction, do you think that was like an anaphylactic reaction, uh, allergic yeah. reaction, or is it the antivenom spoiled? Well, it's, it, it's, it, was, it was a reaction. Um, it's uh, an early reaction caused by the antivenom not being um, top, top dollar, um, which set me in line for this problem I have had with rattlesnake antivenom subsequently. Um, like, I've had Wyeth. Remember the Wyeth? I think there's a few people in the States remember Wyeth antivenom. I've had that a couple of times. And that's, I've gone blind both times on that. So, uh, is it safe to say if you are bitten that you, I mean, is, do you wait it out? Do you try, depending on what? The... No, 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 no. 
People do that and they find them dead on the end of the phone. Now, if you have been bitten by something that is potentially lethal, you well, treat- you, you in particular, of course. Well, not, well, yeah, me in particular. Well, there are bites I've done nothing about, but because I've known that they weren't going to be serious. But um, to be perfectly honest, when when the king cobra bit my shoe and I, all the venom got in my sock, and I took my sock off and I rubbed my toes with the sock, and I got rubbed toes, raw toes. That's how I got envenomed by her, and I ended. I end. The, 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 I, I was still affected by the venom, and, and so I needed to go to hospital for that. The point is that people, why don't people, if people have got a, a venomous, li- venomous snake license, or if they haven't, they often hold off on, on calling for help, and that can cost them their lives. To be honest, if you've been bitten by something that has the capacity to kill you, you should seek medical attention. You don't go, I'll wait it out, and, especially with the lapids. See, the thing about a lot of the vipers is they cause pain and swelling, and that tells you you're not doing so good. Whereas a lot of the lapids, the crates, bungaras, you might not even feel you've been bitten. People are bitten in their sleep, and they don't wake up. They never wake up again because uh, those, some, those neurotoxins do not cause the pain. Pain tells you how well you're doing. If you've got a septic hand, you know you're, you need to get something done about it. This is leprosy, right? Leprosy does not make pieces of your body drop off, you know. Leprosy stops you feeling pain when you're injured. And so you don't do anything about it. And then, of course, things decompose and drop off. Now, pain's your friend. Always, always seek medical attention if you've had a bad, if you've had a bad bite from a potentially dangerous snake. I know that you were one of the first people to explore Timor. So could you kind of explain? Oh, well, no, I mean, uh, people had explored it before, but it, it, had, it had been off the radar for a while because Timor, uh, Timor Leste, as it's now called, used to be called East Timor, has um, an interesting and very bloody history. It was a Portuguese colony when all the rest of that region was Dutch during the colonial times. It was a Portuguese colony from um from the 16th century and the portuguese left in 1975 and in the 70s there was a lot of fear about communism and uh, there was a, a feeling that the country could go communist now that it was independent that wasn't what was going to happen but people assumed it was and indonesia used that excuse to invade and Indonesia invaded, and um, very bloodily, uh, uh, all the journalists were shot and their bodies burned. All the, 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 the white journalists who were reporting, the, it was called the Balibo Affair, and it was quite bloody. But the world sort of turned its, its back. And the, the um, East Timorese then fought a war of independence against Indonesia, for about 21 years, and um, in the late 90s, Indonesia pulled out. But as so often happens after a power like that pulls out, you then get not so much civil war, but basically militias are coming over from West Timor, because that was um, Indonesia and Muslim, and and um, and East Timor was was Catholic. 
and there was more fighting. And the UN had to step in and separate the two parties. And the UN um, separated them and Timor got its independence for the third time in 2002, Timor-Leste. And so it wasn't really until later in that decade that it was really possible to go and start doing research there. And we went in, we took in students from California Community College and also from a German university. Heinrich Kaiser was the driving force behind this. And um, we started doing a survey of the herpetofauna. And uh, we did 10 expeditions there. We've recorded over 70 species, mostly reptiles. Amphibians are thin on the ground, but we've got a couple of new species of amphibians. Um, and we've got, well, probably 25 new species to describe out of the 70 or so species we've recorded. Um, and that was all very exciting because it was. There had been, there'd been two Portuguese collections made during the time as a colonial, they were the colonial power. But those collections were in um, the museum in Lisbon, Portugal, when it burned down in 1978. So that was all lost. So we started making collection and we put material in um, Smithsonian and the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard. And um, I think in the museum in Bonn in Germany. So uh, we've done a pretty good survey of, of the country now. And we've stopped doing field work because we've got so much to write up. But and there's still no Timor pythons on Timor, is there? No, no. Well, um, now the story, do you know the story behind that? Um, not in full. I'm sure you know more than I do, so I'd love to hear it. <clears throat> well, the python of people called Python timoriensis was described by W.H.C. Peters, a German herpetologist. And he received the specimen from shipped to Europe from Kupang, which is the capital and main port of um, West Timor. And he had therefore assumed it had been collected in Timor, but that is not the case. You see, that was the main port and had been for centuries. And anything from those that group of islands whether from the inner Banda arc, which is the Komodo Islands, Flores, um, uh, Lomblam, Solor, um, Weta, or the outer Banda arc, which would be Sumbawa. No, Sumbawa is on in the inner Banda arc, sorry, Sumba, um, Roti, Timor. Everything that was coming to Europe, whether it was sandalwood, spices, or scientific specimens, got shipped out of Kupang. It was the pork of embarkation. And so to assume that the animal was collected there is to jump to conclusions. And this has happened many times, but he called it Timoriensis. And so people call it Timor Python, but we believe it's up on Flores and the islands in the inner Bandarak, which are completely different islands to the outer Bandarak. And uh, it's just an error. And really it should be called, you can't change Timoriensis, that's its name. I mean, alligator mississippiensis was um, misspelt in the original paper with only one P. Now, we all know Mississippi's got two P's in it, but only one P. And um, it was 30 years before that was deemed a typographic error and corrected. So, no, Timorensis stands, but it should be called 
um, lesser sunder python or flores python or something like that, where we do know there are specimens. So yeah, there's reticulated pythons on uh, Timor, and there's Maclutz water pythons there, and there's something else which I've been sent a photograph of, which looks like a python, but is neither of those. Does but, it fall, do you think, between Liasis, Morelia, Somalia, somewhere around there? Well, well, the the reticulate, the, I mean, the, the Maclots python is a Liasis, so it's an Australopapuan python. Um, when um, Leslie Rawlings and Steve Donellan and their team did the work on the reticulated pythons, they, they uh, their molecular work in 2000 and eight was it they did a molecular study of the pythons and they looked at python bivitatus python malurus python sebe etc etc and python reticulatus python timoriensis and they discovered that those two reticul um, reticulatus and timoriensis are more closely related to the morelia group of pythons morelia simalia they're actually um not Asian pythons that have spread southeast. They're more Australo-Papuan pythons that have spread northwest. Their links are more with um, New Guinea and Australia. That's why they needed to be removed and placed in their own genus, which we now call Malayo-Python, for reasons I don't need to go into. <laughs> now, I mean, a lot of people, at least in the, the hobby, uh, Morelia kind of the guys always kept things like Darwin carpet pythons very separate from your what we called Arian Jaya or Papuan carpet pythons. But now we're thinking that they may be the... Yeah, well, Arian Jaya is a defunct term. West Papua, Arian Jaya was... Um, that's going back 20 years now for the western side of New Guinea. But, yeah, people keep their carpet pythons separate. And, yes, that it's a, when it was... When um, Morelia... Spilota was two subspecies. Spilota, Spilota, the obvious diamond python that doesn't look like anything else. Everything else was variegata. Um, Spilota variegata. And variegata means highly variable, which <laughs> sort of does cover everything, really, doesn't it? Everything from jungle pythons to imbricata and bradley eye and everything would fall into that. But, yeah, Wells and Wellington split them up um, years ago in the 80s into subspecies those have generally been accepted um i don't know how many of them have been tested um, um using phylogenetic techniques but they're generally accepted the papuan the, the, the forms up in papua up in new guinea um they've never been included in any phylogenetic study we don't really know what to call them and there are effectively three populations up there. There are certainly two and possibly three. There's the one that everyone's aware of that occurs down around Maroki, um, which is in the southeast of west, the west half of New Guinea. And that runs right across the border into the South Fly, western province of Papua New Guinea. Oh, where's the map? Just a second. <laughs> Never go Probably. far without a map. <laughs> the trouble is this map, <laughs> you probably won't be able to see it. Let's see. 
probably no, it's not going to be very easy to explain. Western, the Western Province, the, the, the south of the Fly River, that is contiguous across to Meroki. That's one population. The other population is along Central Province, which is across the Gulf of Papua, Central Province, Papua New Guinea, and encompasses Port Moresby, the capital. And there are specimens of carpet python reputedly collected on the Mambarambo River, which is on the north coast of West New Guinea. So there's potentially three populations, potentially. So um, you, you would think there would be studies done to see, since these are seemingly populations that don't integrate with each other, that they could be three separate species. They could be. It doesn't mean they necessarily are, because what separates the Western province population from the Central province population which is on the other side of the Gulf of Papua, is um, Gulf Province. And Gulf Province is a lot of mangrove swamps and um, river deltas, and it's, it's, more, it's very saltwater crocodile-type habitat. Now, the, the, the carpet pythons are really savannah woodland, and there isn't any there. So that's a barrier to them. But how long has it been a barrier to them? Because... <clears throat> Southern New Guinea and Australia lie on a shelf, the Sahel Shelf, shallow water. And for at least 40,000 years out of the last 2 million years, that has been a land bridge. It's been broken and rejoined, broken, rejoined. And so the python population in New Guinea would have been contiguous in the past because there would have been potential habitat between Western Province and Central Province at that time, we assume, because that was the way certain things spread into New Guinea. They went up Cape York Peninsula, they went across the Torres Straits, which were not islands in a sea then, and Western Province, and you can bend around the coast to um, the east and reach Central Province. So that population would possibly, possibly have been contiguous. And if that was the case, then they'd be gen genetically similar. Um, and for them to be isolated, how long have they been isolated? They could quite easily be the same snake. Because you can have an island off the coast that's actually just the remains of a peninsula. And if a species on there could be very closely related to the mainland, but it all depends how long it's been isolated for, how long it's been doing its own thing. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about a species that's been isolated. And obviously all the Moralia people I mean, one of the rarest, I guess, Morelia that you could find in the wild, the rough scale python. Yeah. Uh, can we get a little overview of how you got involved in the expedition to find them? Well, I had a, the, the director of that film was a guy called David Wright. And um, he was in touch with John Weigel um, from the Australian Reptile Park, you know, the down at Gosford. Who's, going to, who's done work on, on those pythons. So at that point, I think six specimens had been found. Let me think. The first two were seen but not collected. The second two were collected as museum vouchers to describe the species. And the third two, Weigel had, fortunately, not at the zoo when it, when it burned down. So they survived that. So we were going to go in and look for these rough scale pythons on this expedition. 
and it was going the logistics of the expedition were quite tough and so our director david wright was in touch with john fairly often planning it out and john would tell him so and so and so and, so. and then a few years later john would get a phone call from david wright again asking him the same questions and 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 john would say i've just told you that He'd say no you, no you haven't i did when you called earlier no, I haven't called you earlier. So John's beginning to think David Wright is a schizo. I think he's got a problem. What John didn't realise at the time was there were two film crews coming to film Rough Scale Pythons, one after the other. And both directors were called David Wright. <laughs> so therein lies the confusion. But anyway, <laughs> right. Um, to get in there was uh, was we'd got to get all this equipment and build a camp in there and live in there for about ten days or more, and so we we flew by light aircraft out to the Mitchell Plateau, and I've got a photograph taken out through the the window of the aircraft I'm in of the other two aircraft flying with us, you know it's these small aircraft would drop us off on the Mitchell Plateau, and then we had helicopters to take us and drop us into the Hunter River Valley. And they would take in a couple of people and some supplies, drop them all off on the beach, and then go back and ferry in. And these two helicopters are doing this relay, bringing everybody in, which took pretty much most of the day, and then to set up the camp. And the the campsite that we were going to use was one that John called Shangri-La, because it was really a nice camp, except it wasn't anymore. There'd been a massive flood come down and taken everything away, and it was really the whole habitat had been trashed. So we settled a bit further down the, the, the Hunter River Valley, and each day we would walk, walk up the valley until at the very top of the valley there's a waterfall, and then there's a huge great wall. I mean, we're walking up a gorge, and it, it's a, it comes to a dead end. So if you want to get up that, you've got to climb the waterfall, which we did, but you do it from the other end up and on, on beyond and up there is just a moonscape just the river runs through pools over a lot of rocks and it's really great habitat for herps but we were after rough scale pythons and they were in the in the valley and um the first one was the one that was in the film john weigel caught it um walking he was he decided to camp a bit further upstream um from us that if you can hear that sound, that's fireworks, not gunfire. We don't have people with guns over here. It's certainly going. If that'd be a major gunfight if that was in the states. That's just fireworks. Um, he decided that he wanted to camp further up than the rest of us, and we didn't want to move. Now we set up our camp with all the film gear, and he came back into camp with this rough scale python. I told you, Mark O'Shea, he'd found one. He found a female, which was great. We got one for the film. We were able to talk about it and show it, etc. And we continued searching for another one, and we didn't have any more luck. We had a, a lot of other species, but no more rough scale pythons. And then, um, as the helicopters are beginning to break down the camp and fly all the gear out and fly out the personnel, um, I got a call. I could hear somebody shouting my name, and it was a guy called Alf Britton, who was one of our team. He was one of John Weigel's friends, and he's shouting shouting and i worked out he was halfway up the slope out of the gorge so i scrambled up there to him and he was pulling on an olive python 
that was trying to escape down a hole. And he says the olive python's got a rough scale python. And so we pulled out this olive python, a big, big Lysis olivaceus. And it had got it had got a male um, rough scale python in its, in its mouth. It was trying to eat it, which obviously wasn't going to happen. Oh, no. <laughs> Not on um, your watch, at least. No, no, no. So we rescued that snake. And it wasn't, Huff wasn't bothered about the, the olive. It then plunged back down this hole, but I wanted to catch that as well and photograph it. So I've spent ages with my arms down the hole trying to get this big olive python out. And I could hear the helicopters taking off. And I'm thinking, I hope they know I'm still here. Because Alf and John and a couple of John's other guys were going to walk out. It was going to take him a week. I'd go, I'd go with the helicopters. So I'm waiting and I'm thinking, I hope they realize that they're, they're still, I haven't left yet. You know, so we did get both snakes, but they didn't obviously make it into the film because all the crew and the, the gear was all stashed and gone. But yeah, we caught two rough scale pythons. So pretty wow. cool. So, yeah. What do you know um, who happened to get those as far as like what zoo or whatever, as far as not, not, not those individuals, but I mean, the population that eventually made John it to Weigel. the hobby today. John Weigel. He had the permit to collect rough scale pythons for captive breeding um, at Gosford. Yes. John Weigel. Um, they, I know they're in trade now. Yes. Uh, which is a good way of stopping them being smuggled really because they've now been captive bred and so they're out there. But yes, it was, uh, they went to, um, I, I mustn't confuse the name of his place with, with Steve Irwin's. It's, it, um, it's um, well, a lot of people call it Gosford Reptile Park. It's just north of Sydney. They're really okay, not now sadly burnt down. They've rebuilt it, but it did have a big fire. Now, about these populations in the wild, I have heard that this is kind of an animal that's being drawn to a natural extinction. I mean, is there merit to that? I think some species do go to six, six put my teeth back in. Extinction is a natural process. It is a natural process. If the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct, the mammals would never have got their, their opportunity. Man is speeding a lot of species towards extinction. Some of them species that wouldn't be going extinct without man um but extinction is i mean it's um it's been estimated that the um 250,000 extinct animal species have been described from fossils so that's a large number um i can't really comment on on the whether the rough scale python's heading for an extinction because it's in a remote area and apart from the occasional flood, um, it's not getting a lot of human impact. And also being on Aboriginal land, you know, some of these areas you can't go, you can't just rock up and walk in, you have to have permission. So that's protects. Um, it's, yeah, there are species though that could be going to extinction. Like for instance, um, the Golden Lancet on Nila Camada Grande off Sao Paulo, the island of Sao Paulo, I filmed in the first season, the most venomous snake in the Americas, um, Bothrops insularis. Now, that, that small island's got 5,000 of these pit vipers on it. I mean, in just over an hour, I found 16 without even 
trying. You know, they're everywhere in the forest there, on the ground, in the trees, everywhere. You've got to be careful where you put your hands. It's a dangerous island. Um, but there's three, there's three sexes. There's the males, there's the females, and there's the intersex females. And the oh, male... I need an explanation on that. Well, they're, they're halfway house, I think. Um, but the males seem to go for the more for the intersex females, and and the the real females are quite rare, um, and that can't be good for the species. And so you know, species that are in reproductive isolation, you, you can get inbreeding and all sorts of problems that could push them to extinction. So I don't know what the situation. I mean, the island is protected; it's a reserve. You, nobody's going to go on there and collect them all up. But what their future holds, I don't know. Is there a scientific explanation to that intersex? I'm sure there is, but I've not done the research into that, so I wouldn't like to stick my head out. But yes, I mean, there's plenty of there's plenty of papers being written on Bothrops insularis. The Brazilians have done a great deal of research on it, um, on them, um, especially the guys out of Instituto Butantan. <coughs> Um, and um, people from um, uh, the um, University of Sao Paulo, Universidade de Sao Paulo, uh, those guys, they publish quite a lot in Portuguese, I'm sure some in English. So anyone that's interested, I'd say do a literature search. And some of the early papers are in the um, memoirs of the um, Instituto Butantan, papers by people like Alfredo de Amaral, who was like, He's he's the Holbrook of Brazil, you know, like your famous herpetologist is Holbrook. Every country's got mm. one. Well, Brazil's is Amaral. Hmm. So obviously there's someone on top of that. But I mean, what is um, you seem to have been just an adventure all over the world? I mean, where are some of your favorite places you've been in field research you've done? Um. I love working in Latin America. I haven't been able to do much there in recent years. I have been down to Costa Rica to speak at symposiums and Mexico and so forth. But Latin America, I started out doing a lot in Latin America, but I ended up drifting towards Papua New Guinea. It's, it's draw, always drawn me. And, and that if, if somebody said to me, Mark, you can only work in one place for the rest of your life, um, I would be choosing New Guinea because there's still so much to do. It's not a great place to go if you're really hooked on vipers, because there aren't any. It's, it's all elapid. You do have your death adders, which are convergent evolution. They're fulfilling the, the ecological niche of a short, fat, sit-and-wait um, ambusher with vertical elliptical tubes pupils that does cord luring to attract the prey within the strike range, all the things we associate with a, a viper everywhere else in the world. But in Australia and New Guinea, obviously the niche is vacant, so you've got an elapid occupying it. So you've got a death adder, which is a pseudo pseudo stand-in viper, if you like. But New Guinea is my favourite place. I still have worked in a lot of other places, and there's places I'd really like to go to. You know, um, top of my bucket list is Socotra Island. And where is that? Well, first off, I'll tell you what's interesting about it. Mm -hmm. It's the only blind snake. The only snakes there are blind snakes, um, thread snakes, leptotiflopids, and 
the like. There's no big snake. Well, there's no big snake species on that. Um, hang on, there is. There's a couple of. There's a couple of. There's a colubrid. There's one small colub colubrid. There is a colubrid, but um, people talk about they've seen a big cobra there. No, it, there's there's no proof of that. The but the thing is that all the skinks and the geckos are unique. Most of them are endemic. They're not found anywhere else. There's the dragon tree geckos, which two species are only found there. Some of the trees look really strange. They look like they're growing upside down. The the whole island is a marscape. It's really supposed to be very beautiful. And I, I got hooked on it years ago when I was asked to review a book on Sucatra. Now, it's it'd be a great place to go, but there are a few issues. Firstly, it's Yemeni. It's owned by the Yemen, which is a country in trauma at the moment. Secondly, it's just off the coast of Somalia, which is famous for its pirates. So if you were going, you'd have to fly in and you've got to get permission. And at the moment, it might not be the safest place in the world to go, but it's a fascinating island. I like islands. <laughs> Now, I mean, just because you get permission by the government to go in somewhere, I mean, does that grant you any protection as a researcher? Well, um, I was I was invited to go several years ago, actually, in company with three elderly French entomologists who didn't speak English in a small car. I decided not to take that 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 opportunity. I, I thought that might be um, communication problems and small car, hot place, uh, entomologists. <laughs> I decided not to. No, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to wait and see what happens down there in that part of the world because, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't be a safe place. I have heard that the UAE have actually annexed it and taken it over because of the what's going on in the Yemen, because as you're probably aware, there's a coalition um, which is to some degree backed by the US and Britain, but it's mostly um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and they're backing the Yemeni government, while the Houthi rebels are being backed by Iran. And so there's a real boiling pot there. and. I think if you turn up and say, I want to go and look for a few geckos, if you don't mind, I I, I think I don't think that'd be very high on pri people's priorities. <laughs> That's totally understandable. Do you have do you have anything that you have kind of in the short future that you have planned? Um, yeah, uh, my colleague um, at the I, I, I'm now a professor of herpetology at the University of Wolverhampton. I've been teaching there for about five years on um, on the animal behaviour and wildlife conservation course, and I was offered this professorship, which I I took. Um, and uh, we've been joined by um, Simon Maddock, who's a conservation geneticist, and I've known Simon a long time. Um, he's a good herpetologist, very good herpetologist. He works in Ecuador, the Seychelles, and Papua New Guinea, and we talk the same language. And um, He's got a grant to do some work on sea snakes off the north coast of New Guinea, which I'd very much hope to be involved with because I thoroughly enjoyed doing sea snake work um, when we were filming off uh, Queensland and off Ashmore Reef, um, diving for sea snakes there. 
And the point is that the sea snakes in southern New Guinea are, are pretty much the same as the ones in Australia and are, have been relatively well surveyed. But the north coast has been looked at far less. The Russians were there in the 70s and 80s, and that's basically their trawler boats and things like that, and they would be getting sea snakes as a bycatch. And so the Russian herpetologist Charin described a few species from um, the Pacific at that time. But other than that, there's no, not a lot of work being done there. So that would be really exciting. Sea, sea snake, you know, a journalist once said to me, yeah, Mark, snakes, yeah, that's all well, but, you know, you've seen one, you've seen them all, haven't you? And that's the statement of somebody who's never seen a snake. I mean, I could hear people laughing at that, that, that statement, such an ignorant statement. But the odd thing is, if you say to snake aficionados, sea snakes, they go, oh, yeah, but they're all the same, aren't they? Uh-uh. You have got the same degree of diversity in a sea snake assemblage as you have in a rainforest snake assemblage. You have got the species that live on the bottom. You've got the species that live in the midwater and the species that live at the surface. You've got the species that live in crystal clear coral waters. You've got the species that live in, in um, mangrove swamps and, and estuaries where, where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It's so turbid. You've got the snakes that are, are really docile and you can pick them up. You've got the snakes that will bite you if you look at them. You've got the snakes that are really highly venomous, amongst the most venomous snakes in the world. You've got the snakes, the sea snakes that feed on fish eggs, and there's five species that do that from two different genera. There are, their fangs are shrinking, their venom glands are shrinking, and if you'd like to come back in 100,000 years, they'll probably be non-venomous, because nature, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. They don't need their venom to feed on fish eggs. Then you've got the species that are really, really common, like Hardwick sea snake. You can go out and in four nights you could net 100 of them um, off Weepa, off, off Queensland. Right? They're really, really, really common. Then you've got the species that are really rare and on the point of extinction, um, like some of the ones on Ashmore Reef, some of the Apiosaurus. Then let me see, you've got, this, you've got the, the, the generalist feeders that'll eat any kind of fish. Then you've got the specialist feeders that'll only eat one particular kind of fish. Then you've got the ones that are way out at sea, far from land. Then you've got the ones that are only found in coastal regions, the ones that come onto the mud and actually can move over the mud, and the ones that cannot move on land at all. Then you've got the secrites, of course, which lay eggs, and all the true sea snakes are live bearers. Um, <laughs> the big ones, and the, the, the little tiny ones, and the ones that grow to over two metres. You know, I mean, <laughs> is that enough diversity for you? I mean, the reason people don't know so much about sea snakes is because we don't move in that medium. We walk around on land, we breathe air, we find snakes in the forest and in the, in the hills and on islands and in the grasslands. But once we enter the ocean, we're out of our domain. And that's where they live. And serious people working on sea snakes around the world, a couple of dozen at most. It's an untapped area of research. And there are some very good sea snake people now. Very good. Especially people like Kate Sanders working out of um, out of Adelaide. So I'm hoping to do some more sea snake work. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Is it much like, I mean, I've heard all the time that it, we spend our time trying to go 
to Mars when we don't even know what's at the bottom of the ocean? I mean, do you think that there's sea snakes out there that we haven't even discovered yet? Yeah, of course. There was a species described what, only a few years ago from, um, from the Gulf of Carpentaria, which is that big bite out of Australia between the top end and Cape York Peninsula. Yes, there's new species out there. There's always new species out there. And, and have and, they all been found to be venomous? Um, that one actually is one of the, well, basically what they've done is split Apisurus uh, edui into two species because the one they found, that other, oh, but they did describe that one after the boat captain. Oh, God, what's his, I know the boat captain. I've been on his boat and he's, I shouldn't have forgotten that. He's had a species named after him. That's a um, Hydrophis. That's a venomous one. Um, but the, the, the mosaicus is one of these fish egg eaters. Very you know, cool. it, so he doesn't need his venom because mm. there's a resource there, fish eggs. Now we have the, the North Wales Zoo in our chat here, and they said, any chance you could talk about discovering the red-eyed crocodile skink? The red-eyed, I didn't discover it. Okay, yeah, I was about to say, I didn't read of that, but... No, 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 I didn't discover that. That's a triblinotus. They mm -hmm. are tremendous. They're, they're the most amazing skinks. I mean, if you look at them, they don't look like a skink. Uh, they, they, they look like a little dinosaur. They've got a huge cask-like head, which is really quite hard and got ridges on it. And they've got um, war paint around their eyes. They've got orange war paint around their eyes. And then they've got a red ring around the eye, a uh, yellow ring around the iris. And then the body... Um, down the back, they have like four rows of raised keels, keels, which is why they get called crocodile skinks. And the, the head ends almost like a beak. I think they feed primarily on termites. And if you pick one up, the first thing it'll do is squeal. Now, they're only that big. And when it squeals, really quite loud. And if you turn it over, they have palmar and plantar glands. That's on the hands and feet, we don't know what they're for. And on the abdomen, there's a really big gland covered by about six big scales. And they're much larger in the males than in the females, but both have them. What is this? Is this some form of scent marking? I don't know. What is this gland for? We don't know. And they only lay a single egg. A female breeds once a year and she lays an egg. And the egg is like a, a tenth of her body weight. It's a big old long egg and it's striated. And, um, you know, they're the most amazing, amazing uh, um, lizards. And I find them on this one volcanic island. They're, they're all over New Guinea, but I, on this one new, new volcanic island where I was working, I was after Micropecisikahika, the New Guinea small-eyed snakes, which I was catching for uh, venom research. In fact, I caught the first 80 of those snakes ever used for um, venom and snake bite research. And... This, what I would look is in the coconuts, you know, coconuts, when they fall out of trees, are about this big. If it drops on your head, it kills you, stone dead. It's a common cause of death in, in the tropics. It's coconuts falling on people. Never linger under a coconut palm. Well, the copra industry don't want all of that. They want the coconut. So they have these people that husk coconuts all day long. And what the guy does, he drives a spike into the ground, and then he gets the big coconut, it goes whack onto the end of the spike, splits off the husk, whack, whack, whack. And when he gets good at it, it only takes three strikes, and he'll have got all the husk off, and he'll throw that on one side. It'll then crack 
the coconut oat on the spike. Pour out that lovely coconut milk that you like to drink. Put the two halves together, stick them in a sack. And in a, in a day's work, you'll fill a sack easily. And that all goes to be dried, and it goes into the copper industry for your desiccated coconut and, and also coconut oil and things like that. Now, what happens to the husks? Well, there's no market for them. They have started to now use them, I think, for as um, potential plant bedding and things like that to try and conserve sphagnum moss, which is becoming endangered. Yeah, but, we have uh, reptile bedding actually made yeah. of coconut husk. Well, that's what it is. That's what it is. Well, these husks, they end up in a big pile. And let me tell you, reptiles love them. Now, initially, this big pile, which could be eight, ten foot across and, and reach two-thirds away up your body, big pile. Initially, it's just a pile of discarded coconut husks. It's pretty spartan. And there's nothing in there. But as it gradually breaks down, it'll warm up and it'll decompose a bit like a compost heap. And as it does, it starts to become enticing to animals. And I'm after the small-eyed snakes that are in there. And so we'll surround a coconut husk pile, myself and a bunch of my Papuan assistants, and we'll start to dismantle it throwing husks over our shoulders as we're working our way in. And on the way in, you will find Triblinotus gracilis, the crocodile skink. You will find some of the steganotus, the ground snakes. You will find Candoya aspera, the, what people call a viper boa. They're pretty common. They call them sleepy snakes in New Guinea because they don't move. And they just you'll find those curled up in things, you know, and there's, there's one blending beautifully. You will find um, big land crabs, you will find bird-eating spiders of the genus Cosmia, which come out with their arms up and they hiss at you and rush at you and will bite you and they hurt, right? You will find centipedes, big centipedes, giant centipedes that come. You're just about to think you're pinning a, a shiny skink and you, because out of the corner of your eye, you see this thing come out and it looks like a skink. You go to pin it with your flatty hand and realize it's a centipede just in time to avoid getting bitten. Um, scorpions in there. Um, lots of uh, direct breeding frogs that don't have a tadpole stage. Um, that's um, Platymantis papuensis and various uh, other skinks. It's Phenomorphus nemoya genera. Lots of um, Eugoniglus rivescens, the, the sheen skink that eats other lizards. Occasional blue tongue skink, Tiliqua. Um, and I'm after the, the, the small eyed snakes which ultimately you hope to find, and you might do six piles and get one. But they all live in this amazing habitat. And then after a while, the thing is broken down and decomposed to the point where it's full of ants. And when that happens, not much lives in there because the ants are aggressive. So when you start ripping one of these husks apart, if it's really black and nasty inside and there's ants, you may as well pack it in because it, because they tend to drive almost everything else out. But yeah, that's where the crocodile skinks live. Now that seems like you're just waiting for a surprise, finding a bunch of brown yeah. and black animals in a brown substrate. Yeah, but then when you but when you're working through that environment, you suddenly come across Micropecus, a two well, say a, a one point six meter. Say, um, what's that in your in your um three three to three Four foot feet or so yeah uh, um small-eyed snake now this that these have got a gray grayish head gray brown head the anterior body can be 
anything from brown to yellow to milk white. And then they've got brown and red bands on the body, increasing posteriorly until the tail is dark. And when you uncover one of those, this, you just break into the surface of, of, of the earth or something, and there you see these white snakes' coils. The people call them white snakes, and they they kill people, and there's no specific anti-venom. So that's why we're after them. <laughs> really? Is it in a lapid? Yeah. It's a New Guinea endemic. They're not found, They're not related to what people call small-eyed snakes in Australia. Micropecus kahika. And is that an area that is populated and they pose a threat to? I mean, who lives there? And is it well, often... Uh... Coconut plantations, the plantation workers, and now the oil palm plantations... We've switched to working in oil palm plantations. We catch them there as well. But we've got one oil palm plantation we're working in where in one week we saw 46 taipan and caught 10. Wow. Now, so snake you see out all that often, right? A taipan you have to work to find. You have to walk the miles. Um, and they're gone. I mean, you know how dangerous they are. I don't need to tell you about that, Papua taipan. This oil palm plantation, they were established in there. And they were doing remarkably well. <coughs> it's around all the oil palms. They bought all the dead fronds as a windbreak. And also they decompose and put nutrients back into the into the soil. And these are great places for venomous snakes to live. And there's plenty of bandicoots and rats in there. So they've got a home to live in, plenty of prey. They come out, they bask, they go back in. If you're walking along and you see a taipan and it, and you don't get to it before it disappears. You walk a bit further, you'll see another one. I mean, we would be out there at six o'clock in the morning when the taipan were coming out to bask. And as I said, it was a, it was probably five or six days we saw 46, and we got 10 of them. Wow. So this seems to be a haven for some snakes, but does it do these plantations pose a threat to... Here's my theory. It's nature's payback, right? Think about man-made monocultures, coffee, tea, rubber, rice, um, oil palm, coconut, whatever one you want, right? Different parts of the world, these man-made monocultures are put, into, uh, are put into, the, into the area, and the, one of the first things that happens is species diversity declines, because a lot of things cannot do well in there. The pests do well, rats and things like that. They'll do. They'll their numbers will increase because there's plenty to eat. And what feeds on those? Well, venomous snakes. So um, you invariably get a much larger population of venomous snakes in these man-made microhabitats than well, not them man-made macro habitats, I should say. Man-made macro habitats. These monocultures that man's created. A higher incidence of venomous snakes of a particular species than you would find in a neighboring piece of pristine habitat. And they're doing really well. And they're reproducing well. And they're eating a lot. And they're biting people. But unfortunately, they're biting some of the poorest people. People who do not have the means to go to hospital. Um, and, and, and this is a big issue. I mean, if, if nature's nature's if it's nature's payback maybe they should be biting the plantation owners not the plantation workers um but yeah and sometimes it's a non-venomous snake 
if it, the the oil palm plantations in um, Borneo, it's blood pythons and um, spitting cobras that you find a lot. If you go into rubber plantations um, on the Malay Peninsula, uh, it's uh, Malayan pit vipers in Thailand actually more than Malaya because it barely runs into Malaya and Malayan pit viper only comes into the north of Malaya. North of Malaya, it's more Thailand. But yeah, um, I've just been in Myanmar in Burma. Um, catching um, Russell's vipers and spitting cobras and Thai cobras and, and green pit vipers for venom work, venom research, and working around rice paddies. And I've done the same in Sri Lanka. And you can turn up a lot more venomous snakes than you would if you went into an, a similar-sized area of pristine habitat. Wow. So what are what are these workers, I mean, education level with the animals that they're encountering since they're encountering them more often? They're poor people who are desperate for work. But do they have any education of what they're looking at, what animals they can encounter? Um, no, when it comes to a snake, they kill it on site because regardless, one of the things that we're trying to promote in, in some of these plantations is stop killing pythons. If you stop killing pythons, they will eat the rats that are actually infesting the plantation in the first place. But you can understand a, um, a, a person who really is just frightened of snakes, probably knows somebody who's died of a snake bite, not really wanting to take the risk. And they, they do, they kill them. I mean, I've done so many lectures in Papua New Guinea to plantation workers about, onto them, and so they, well, not more to their line managers than to the workers um, to stop killing pythons. But you can, you can take this story down to, Brazil, if you want to. Manaus. Have you heard of leishmaniasis? No. It's a tropical disease. It's um, this leishmania donovanai. It's a really nasty, it, it'll eat your face away. It's a really nasty um, parasitic disease. And it's affected by um, a fly bite. And that's how, rather the same way you get malaria from mosquito bites and you get dengue from mosquito bites and you get sleeping sickness from tetsy flies and so forth. So it's affected by an, um, a fly bite. I think it's a sand fly. Phlebotomus, I think it is, if I remember correctly. Anyway, this disease has a zoonosis. Now, a disease with a zoonosis, that means it occurs in another species. And that species is the possums of South America. And if you, so that basically means you could eradicate leishmaniasis in the human population, but it'll come back because the flies that are biting us are also biting the possums and picking it up and transferring it, roughly. Now, the possums around Manaus, when I was last in Manaus, and it is some years ago, they might have cleared it all up now, but I was there in the 80s and the 90s. There's a lot of creeks that are just full of rubbish and the possums are in there doing what possums do, having a whale of a time. And they're all carrying leishmaniasis. And the flies are biting them and biting the people, and people are getting leishmaniasis. So how do you deal with this? Well, one of the things that you could do is leave the boa constrictors alone because they're killing the possums and eating them. So they've had, they had campaigns about don't kill boas, they're your friends. They're eating the possums that are giving you leishmaniasis. Did it have any effect? Of course not. People still kill boas. You know, people, rural people invariably see snakes as enemies and kill them on sight. And, and you might ex explain to them afterwards, but at the time when they, when they see a snake, they reach for a shovel 
I don't think about it. Right. And I mean, you even know the, you know, really educated people. I mean, it still happens in the States. I'm sure yeah. it still happens in the UK, all over that, you know, people just have this innate fear of and snakes. I thought, and I think they're doing God's work because Christianity and Judaism give snakes a bad rep. Other religions don't, but, you know, Christianity hasn't done snakes any favors. So <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, the whole, so when I did the film with a lovely guy, Dewey Chafin, and, and the other snake handlers down in West Virginia, you know, the, the Church of Jesus Christ, where they're, where they're handling rattlesnakes and so forth, the whole point of that is you're taking up serpents. Serpent is seen as a evil. Dewey didn't see them as evil. He likes snakes, but but uh, you know the whole basis of that is you're you're defeating Satan by handling, you know. So snakes snakes get a pretty poor rep. I don't think there's anything gets such a bad rep as snakes. And I think there's just it's so weird how it's been caught up in things like religion, especially with I mean you see in some of your African countries, you know, people get bit by venomous snakes and then they have you know their witch doctor, their shaman oh, kind of treat yeah. it. Does well. I've been doing a lot of lectures over here recently because we're 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 trying to raise awareness about snake bite. Because you know how many people die of snake bites each year? No. Well, the figures have gone up. It's reckoned to be now close to one hundred thirty-eight thousand. Wow. Right. Um, uh, do you know how many people are maimed and and permanently disabled by snake bite? Never marry, never work. No. Around four hundred thousand a year. Wow. Forget landmines. So this, these, these are stark figures, but it's not people in the West. It's people in Nigeria and Mali and Senegal and Nepal and India, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Pakistan, Papua New Guinea. That's where they're dying. Not so much in Latin America, because the, the, I mean, in, in Central South America, people do die, probably 5,000 deaths a year. But, but there's antivenom, so many good antivenoms. The Costa Ricans, uh, Instituto Clodomiro Picado, are now producing antivenoms for Sri Lanka and Papua New Guinea and Africa. I mean, they are the heroes. They really are the heroes. These guys, and, and uh, Silani's lab in Mexico, producing antivenoms, and Butantan, of course, every, all this antivenom. But it's less available in Africa and Asia, and, it's, it's, and a lot of it's poor quality. But um, getting back to the witch doctors, um, one of the favorite techniques I've come across for snake bite and this is one that's being pushed by missionaries in papua new guinea is the black stone have you heard of that no well a black stone isn't a black stone it's a piece of charred cow bone you put it in the fire and it chars and the funny thing is it's very porous it's like pumice you know from a volcano and if you've got a bloody wound and you put it on that it'll stick to it and it'll because it's porous soak up some of that blood and that's part of what makes it stick so they think that it's taking drawing the venom out you can't draw the venom out you know the venom's in but this technique i've come across missionaries saying this is the technique for snake bites in, in papua new guinea what these missionaries don't realize is that they are actually promoting a technique that started with witch doctors in africa it's, it's um, sorcery. 
<laughs> these Bible bashers are actually promoting a witch doctor's snake bite technique, which is well killed to tell them. But black, Blackstone won't save you. Um, these techniques won't save you. You'll get, you come across a magic man, they'll say, well, I can save 19 out of every 20 snake bite victims that come to see me. That's a good record, yeah. As you know, a lot of snake bite doctors would like to be able to say, I can save 19 out of 20. But what happens if only one of those people received a lethal dose of venom? The other 19 either had dry bites or sublethal bites or were bitten by non venomous snakes. The villager doesn't know. So then the ninth, the one out, you know, then you know, only lose one out of 20 isn't such a great record. <laughs> Lost yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I it's it's, but you can't you can't just say this is rubbish. Stop doing it. Go to the hospital. What you need to do is work with, because the, these are the magic man, the witch doctor. These people are often very respected. The Ayurvedic physician, they're respected in their communities, and you can't just come in and be a Westerner and say stop doing this. That, that approach, you just alienate people. What you have to do is say, look, okay, you know when you've got a bite that you really don't think you're going to be able to save. Send those to the hospital. Carry on with the others. Send those. So how do you, I mean, work to preserve someone's culture when, you know, you're asking them? Because obviously they probably have a mistrust in, I mean, Western medicine, right? Well, it's got to be said that Colonialism, although, you know, colonialism, you know, is responsible for some terrible, terrible crimes. So for people to be suspicious of the West is not unreasonable. Um, one of the things I think um, has an effect here is that a lot of rural people in developing countries accept the finality of a snake bite. Like if you get a cancer diagnosis, you sort of think, I'm going to die. And if you're really terminal, do you want to go to a hospital or a hospice 100 miles away to be surrounded by strangers? Or would you rather stay at home with your family and loved ones? And I think that's the mindset, potentially, of villagers with a snake bite that they accept they might not be going to die, but they seem to have this acceptance that they are. And given the choice of going to a hospital, which could be very expensive to get to, they might, their, visit, their family won't be able to come and visit them. It's far too far away. They've got to bring the crops in this, or shall they stay at home? And you can, you can, you can see that mindset. So it's not just a, a lack of um, faith in, in Western medicine. It's also the fact that it is a bit alien and it, you, you know, it's not like they'd be treated at home. So I can understand that. And now are there people kind of combating this as well yes. as, you know, giving them resources? Yes, there are. And not me. I'm not giving them. I'm, it's not, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's my colleagues who work with the WHO and, um, and um, uh, I, I know some great doctors in, in Papua New Guinea, um, Papuan doctors, and what they do, well, the first, the first important thing is stopping the person dying there and then, and not doing something silly. And so, what they do is they they go out to villages, and they'll ask for volunteers. And these could be the headmaster, 
couple of kids out of school, the shop, the shopkeeper, um, housewife, whatever. And they will train them to do the Aussie bandage technique, which you can use for a neurotoxic snake bite. It's not a, it's not a tourniquet. People are great at putting those on. They're not so good at taking, remembering they've got to release them every so often. So when people losing their arms and things with tourniquets that are put on and left on. Um, the, the, the Aussie bandage is a compression bandage. <clears throat> it's a preferred method for snake bite. It slows down the rate of absorption um, and the rate of transportation, but it's not actually stopping your circulation or anything like that. And they train a few people in the village how to do these bandages. And then they'll leave them with bandages, instructions to practice. And then six months later, they'll go back and they'll have all those people again and say, well, okay, show us what you've learned. And they'll see how well they're done. Now, the beauty of this is if somebody suffers a snake bite in that village, there's possibly going to be somebody with an earshot who knows what to do to slow down the rate of absorption and give them that extra time to get transported to hospital. Now, how do you get to hospital? Well, in Nepal, they came up with a really clever technique. I mean, a lot of villages you cannot reach with a four-wheel vehicle, but lots of people have got motorbikes. So they have a guy who's got a local, a local guy who's got a motorbike, and he'll have a pillion passenger, and they will stick the patient in between them and take him down the tracks to hospital. And that means, okay, the patient's sitting upright, which isn't optimal. The patient isn't exerting themselves walking either. So that's, you know, rudimentary ambulance. Take people to hospital on the back of a motorbike from places where you can't get a vehicle, a four-wheel vehicle. Now switching, um, we got into a rabbit hole on the venomous snake bites, but <laughs> uh, switching to, we mentioned, we talked about a little bit before we were live, kind of about the impact of wild populations for, you know, captive collections and importing wild caught animals. So can you touch on a little bit about, uh, you know, your views on wild caught animals and captive keeping? Well, I strongly support captive breeding and... The, the show we have in the UK, the, the IHS show, the International Herpetological Society show, it's not the International Herpetological Symposium, which have in the US, it's completely different, but this society is coming up to its 50th year. I've been a president in the past and so forth. And it's, it's, it's larger society of reptile keepers, even though I don't keep any reptiles anymore, um, I'm still involved with the society. And they have a show, which is a breeder show, and there's no wild court allowed for sale there. Um, some years ago, I remember going to a show in, in the UK and somebody had bred emerald tree boas and he'd got these emerald tree boas feeding and they were doing really well and they were really nice little snakes and he was selling them, I can't remember, let's say for £800 each. And somebody else turned up at the show and he had imported emerald tree boas, adults, from Guyana. And he probably landed him on the Friday, driven over from Holland on the Saturday, and he was at the show on the Sunday selling them for £400. So they're half the price of the captive bred juveniles. And people being what they are, he sold his, and the guy with the captive bred ones didn't. And that's the wrong way around. Um, those adult 
emerald tree boas, whether the people who bought them ever got them feeding, who knows? They could be impacted with parasites. There's a lot of things that could be wrong with those snakes, quite apart from the stress. And the guy who put the work into captive breeding them lost out, and probably the snakes. In fact, the only person who, who actually came out of that laughing was the guy who'd imported them. And I think we're at a time now where we have to look at the source of our animals. See, when I started keeping reptiles back in the late 60s, early 70s, the term herpetoculture hadn't even been coined. We were herpetologists. Um, and there weren't that many of us. Even in the States, it wasn't the biggest hobby in the world. And, and it's taken off so much since then that I just don't think that the wild populations of quite a number of species could be sustained if they were to supply the demand for keepers. Now, I'm not saying that um, exploitation of animals for pets or for serious keepers is, is the biggest threat that these animals face. It's not. Habitat destruction, wanton destruction, just persecution, um, collection for meat, skins, gallbladders. I mean, I read an IUCN paper some years ago that said something like half a million reticulated pythons went into the skin trade in Borneo and Sumatra alone every year. I mean, that's not sustainable. But it's a case of the last straw that broke the camel's back, you know, um, and there are people who will, will get you anything. If you want to tour Tara and are prepared to pay enough, there is somebody who will go and smuggle you one out of New Zealand. Now, that doesn't make you a reptile lover. You know, um, I think people who are really fascinated by reptiles and really feel for their animals wouldn't want to see those animals go extinct and feel that they had had a hand in it. And so I think that captive breeding is the way to go. Now, obviously, if you're going to captive breed a species, you've got to have founder animals from the wild. Absolutely. And that's, that's fine. And also, you need to introduce new bloodlines to keep them healthy. Yeah, I agree with that. I have no problem with that. But the way that shipments used to come in, and I remember them in the 70s, shipments coming in from Asia in December containing Hampton's slug-eating snake, which you'd have a job to feed if you've got a supply of slugs. And um, the Central American snake, um, Scolicophis atrocinctus. Um, I remember going to a dealer and having a look at what he got, and he'd, come, he'd got the shipment in in January. It was cold weather, and he'd got 12 of these, and he thought they were, um, he th he'd been told that they were um, dipsus, snail eaters, right? which wouldn't have helped in January in England, but they weren't. There was Scolicophis atrocinctus. They eat Scolopendrid centipedes. Well, we haven't gotten here. Certainly not in January. So those are being shipped out, and they're just going to die. And that, that, was, that was the bad old days. And now so much more has been done with... I mean, I'm no fan of cultivars. I'll be honest, I, I'm, I'm a field herper. I'm interested in the snakes in their original 
colours. I'm not, I, you know, people show me a picture of some amazing ball python that's got some, it really doesn't, it doesn't tick my boxes. It doesn't float my boat. But those animals are contributing to the conservation of ball pythons. Because if everybody wants cultivars, then the, it hopefully puts a hole in the market for shipping all these royal pythons out of West Africa. Because hundreds of thousands of those used to come out every year to Europe and the US, and most of them would die. And I just feel that we have to have a conscience about our, the sources. And if we think the animals are smuggled, we shouldn't buy them and things like that. Um, because we, I hope, we're involved in, in herpetology because we actually like and respect the animals, not mm -hmm. because we make a buck out of them. Right. And it might be quite controversial, but hell, <laughs> you're, uh, it's not as controversial as some of the things your potters has said. <laughs> well, now, I mean, you, some people think that, I mean, there has to be an economic need, especially here in the U.S. We like to commercialize everything. I mean, if the ball python, before there was a $10,000 ball python morph, no one cared about the ball python and people were just, you know, there were disposable pets. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that that is somewhat of a positive result? I mean, having the economic value in the animal? Look, these guys that are breeding all these fancy morphs, apart from the, I mean, there's, there's, there's the, the IHS show over here has just banned some, um, ball python morphs and some um, leopard gecko morphs and these are ones with genes that are lethal and they've been banned from the show and that's that's a good move because we shouldn't be breeding animals that we know are going to die mm. you know we shouldn't deliberately do that but these people who are breeding the albino boas and albino retics and all of that good okay because there are people who want those a large proportion of the market want those I don't if I was keeping snakes again, I wouldn't have any albinos uh, because they just I'm because I'm a Phil Herper. But that is conservation because it's supply and demand. And those animals are being supplied from uh, captive bred. They're not coming from the wild and it's taking the pressure off some of the wild populations. And so, you know, that's off. Absolutely. Now, do you see, I mean, your Papua New Guinea, you know, all those animals that you love so much are often ones that are taken advantage of and wild collected. I mean, do you see in the country, I mean, collectors, or do you see that country closing off, you know, trade in any time? Papua New Guinea doesn't actually allow the export of its wildlife to the pet trade. The pet trade, I mean, that's the term that's used. I'm not saying Reptiles is, but they're always pets. Some people, you know, serious pets of country, this does not affect people, but what they call a pet trade. Papua New Guinea doesn't permit that, actually. So but I that, mean, Indonesia ships Indonesia them out, though. Yeah, yeah, but here's a, here's an interesting one for you. Um, Botrychillus boa, Bismarck ring python, right? Mm -hmm. That's found in New Britain and New Ireland and Duke of York Island. They are all within Papua New Guinea. There's none of those islands are Indonesian. So how they got into the trade legally is a big, big question mark. Um, but yeah, Indonesia, yeah, there's a lot of stuff comes out of there. And some of the people that are shipping stuff out of there are only interested in the filthy lucre. They're interested in the money they make. They'll sell the unkeepable to you if you'll pay the money. And 
those aren't those aren't reptile enthusiasts as far as i'm concerned you know mm-hmm. the fact that if you read some of the books about the smuggling trade the fact that the reptile trade used to be quite closely linked to the to the drugs trade they're the same blokes you know so um yeah <laughs> it's hopefully cleaned up its act yeah yeah and it's hard because i mean once you become privy to it you see glimpses of this kind of old school mentality that is so far i mean you hope has been eliminated but it just hasn't been completely but you know good breeders are trying to educate you know it's the new people coming in who don't know any better you know they just see an animal for cheap and they take it yeah yeah what's they say yeah i mean the only the only things that are in life that are free are uh are, are yeah the good things are yeah your health and the lo- love of a good partner anything else that's free has got a got a catch in it somewhere they're not cheap or free for because they they're feeling altruistic uh, that's because they're either sick or you can't keep them yes i mean this is where herpers have to police herpers and we have the Danish Wild Animals Act in this country where you have to have a license for venomous snakes and a bunch of other things as well. And there are people that don't have um, licenses and are keeping stuff illegally. But they're endangering all the people that are keeping things legally because when they get caught out and the government thinks, well, we've got to tighten up on this, and in the end you end up with an outright ban. So the, the hobby has to police itself. And if they think somebody's up to no good, it's better that, this is explained to them by other enthusiasts than heavy-handed legislation is brought into play. Absolutely. Now, I mean, you're, at least our audience through the podcast, is mostly like 16-year-olds to 35-year-olds who typically keep these animal activity and just like everyday reptile lovers but i mean what can just the everyday reptile lover do for conservation as a whole i i think anybody who keeps um reptiles and is is true it keeps them for the right reasons because they're interested in them not because it's a status symbol or they can wear it down to the pub or something like that if they keep them for the right reasons then they can do a lot for for snakes because and for other reptiles as well although snakes are the ones that tend to get the worst rap because they can educate their friends and their peers and their parents and and sort of try and wave the flag for reptiles and go into you know go and take the snake into school with the permission of the teachers of course and, and and do an impromptu talk and get people to meet it and things like that not to encourage other people to keep reptiles just because if they could oh, I'll, I'll have one as well no to just get the message out there that these animals are not um evil they're not out to get you snakes it every snake doesn't wake up in the morning thinking I haven't bitten anyone for three days. I really got to try harder. You know, you find if you find yourself forever dealing with people, telling them that how many times have you told people that snakes aren't slimy? Right. How many times have you told people that they do not hypnotize you? How many times have you told people that it's not going to sting you with its tongue? There's an endless flow of people that don't know this. And everybody who keeps reptiles can get this message over and how, how else can people help be a bit more aware of the source where you obtain 
no snakes. No car parks off the interstate, dodgy deals. You're not doing a drug deal. Buy legitimate snakes from people who are legitimately allowed to sell them. Do captive breeding. Join the societies. Think about education. You know, I'd, we have a thing in this country called the 11 plus. You do it when you're about 11. And if you pass it, you go to a comprehensive school or a grammar school. And if you don't, you went to a secondary modern. You don't, this isn't now, this is when I was 11, right? So we're going back in the 60s. I went to what was known as a secondary modern, which was basically everybody who wasn't intellectually challenged. Um, and the idea was that we'd end up working in factories. And I just developed late. You know, my schooling improved from there on in. And I ended up talking my way into university to do a degree. And I did that, and that was back in the 80s. And now I'm back teaching other students, and I've got a professorship, and I've got an honorary doctor of sciences, and all the rest of it. And I started, people say, well, I missed school. I didn't, I went back in, into education as a mature student, relatively late in life. And if you're interested, you can do that. And you, 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 the world's your oyster. You can achieve amazing things. You get, get involved in field work, find out um, where, where they're doing conservation work to save wetland areas in your neighborhood. Join the local Herp Society. Okay, join the big national ones like SSAR and Herp League and ASIH. Yes, great. But join the local one where you can actually go out and do some field time, learning from people and doing some conservation, actual hands-on conservation. Don't just think of herpetology as keeping a snake at home because it's a much, much larger subject than that. And read, read a lot. Ask questions. Now, what are some good resources for younger people kind of looking to get into herpetology to begin with to educate themselves? I think I think those it really depends what age. If you're still at school, do well at school. Because when when you work hard at school, you're not doing it for your parents or your teachers. You're doing it so that you have got a better um, hand of cards to play to get to do the job that you want to do in life. If you've already left school, think about doing vocational studies in the evenings, try and pick up the qualifications that might get you into college. Now, I don't know the American school system. I went through the British school system. So I, I can't really give a lot of advice about where which schools and colleges you should go to, but it's worth finding out which ones have got herpetologists. For instance, community colleges. You've got a lot of those in the US. Larry David Wilson, who did all the work in Central America in Honduras, he lectured at Miami Dade Community College for years and years and years. To have been one of his students would really expand your knowledge. And the Victor Valley Community College in California. That's where Hinrich Kaiser is. And they're the students we've been taking out and teaching field techniques in Timor from 2009 to 2014. 
and some of them have gone on and gone to university. So it's up, it's, you know, you can expand your knowledge. I think that is really important for people to hear because community colleges over here are generally frowned upon and seen as people who couldn't get into other colleges and you don't think that there's actual opportunities there. Well, so it's like... three, three weeks doing her field work with us in Timor, finding, finding, learning the techniques, learning how you do fix museum specimens, learning how to identify things, doing dichotomous keys, all of that. That all came out of the students of Victor Valley. And, you know, I'm sure Larry David took his, some of his students' places. So, yes, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not Harvard. You don't have to start off with Harvard. I came back in to education, and I've worked my way up by a rather unusual circuitous route. And if I can, anybody can. you just got to have that desire. you you just got to have that. You want to you, you do it so much you can taste it. Listen, I will enroll in community college immediately if I get to go to Timor. <laughs> it wouldn't do any harm. <laughs> They've got a herper on the team. Yeah. Well, anyway, we can't, we're coming up on our two hours. I just want to thank you so much just for taking the time out and for talking to us. Honestly, it's a super honor to just to have you here and for two full hours. It's amazing. Well, it wasn't too full as we did have um, the time when communications <laughs> were as bad as Brazil in 1987. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, we did go black a little bit. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, yes, it, it, we did lose those comms. I, mean, I, I was gonna, I was gonna attach a, a the a car battery to a shortwave radio and ring you up, call you up that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we got to figure it out. Now, is there anywhere? Um, that people can contact you or anything that you implore people to check out that you're well, uh, working on? Obviously on on Facebook, but I've I've got like less than 100 places left, and I've got uh, over a 1,000 people. I keep getting sent requests, and I, I do keep some free for people who I'm just my students and people like that. But uh, Facebook, um, I'm on there. I'm, I'm thinking of setting up a, a, a public, more public... Um, account on there as well, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Contacting me, well, I mean, I'm at the University of Wolverhampton. I'm at West Midlands Safari Park in the UK. Um, and I've got my agent and so forth. Who's they're David Foster Management. But people can email me or, you know, you can put them in touch with me if they've got some questions. You know, I'm, I'm... one of the best things about being me is being able to get and inspire other people to do some herpetology. And I get a lot of people come and say, I was inspired to study biology, I was inspired to do this, I was inspired because I watched your films, because I read your books. And that for me, that that's 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 a good legacy to leave behind, isn't it? Yeah, that's amazing. And honestly, when I first reached out, did I ever expect you to be so gracious and just say yes, pretty much immediately without knowing me? Like, no. Um, I don't know why people f are surprised. I, I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm an ordinary bloke. I go down the pub with my friends, you know. It's, 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 um, 
from where I'm sitting, I don't. Okay, I've achieved quite a lot, and a lot of what I've done, people have liked. Okay, I'm fortunate in that. I had a great TV series; people enjoyed. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well, and I'm fortunate enough to write some books and do. But I'm, I'm, I haven't got airs and graces. I don't, you know, I don't live in an ivory tower, because that would be wrong. Cites Appendix One. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. On our end, uh, portcitypythons.com. You can check us out. We have shirts available. And I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. I had an amazing time. And once again, thanks again to you, Marco Shea, for coming on. Thank you for asking me.